varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Erika Jong i samtal med Hans-Olav Brenner, NRK. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Well, how did you feel about that introduction? Actually, I try um, to take in the enthusiasm and the applause because I know that very soon I'll be sitting at my desk all alone, convincing myself that nobody wants to read my new book. <laughs> so I'm trying to remember it. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to talk about demons and seduction of those, among other things. Uh, but uh, this book, Seducing the Demon, uh, has been published in Sweden now. Uh, and I was very compelled by the subtitle of this book, Writing for My Life. I mean, what happens to you if you don't write? I think that if you're a born writer, you must write. It's a, it's a need. Um, you. You do it because you have no choice. And thank God for that, because it's a very difficult profession. It's, it's very lonely, and um, critics are often not kind. Your contemporaries are jealous if you're successful. I mean, it's a difficult profession. So you do it because you have to. What does that mean? How do you feel it that you just have to? How do you feel? I don't know. I, I, Robertson Davies, the Canadian writer, once said, um, the books you should write are the books that you will go mad or perhaps die if you don't write. And there must be this necessity behind every book, mm. I think. I mean, we read books that have no necessity behind them. And we, we read them, but we don't have the same joy from them. So it's a calling. It's a calling, it's not a profession. <laughs> it's like being a Francis of Assisi. You know, you take a, a vow of poverty and a loyalty to the animals when you become an, a writer. <laughs> when did you know that you were going to be an a writer? I started writing when I was probably 10 years old. And at that time I was also illustrating my little books. And I started out to be a painter. But I always wrote. I don't remember a time when I didn't write. Hmm. It gets harder though when you have a public. In some ways it's easier when you think no one will read what you write. Because then you can be really frank. I'm always convincing myself, in order to be free, I have to say, no one will ever read this. How and do you convince yourself that after having published and sold 30 million copies? Um, it's very, very hard. <laughs> very hard. Mm. Uh, 
The demon. What is the demon? Is it God? Is it a muse? Can you describe what it is? The demon is, is a muse, and the muse is also a lover. The demon is a character out of Isaac Bashevis' singer. You know, he loves demons. He finds them in feather pillows. He finds them all over the place. The demon is um, your connection with magic. The demon is frightening. The demon is sexual. And the demon drives you onward. Hmm. But is it, is it, could it be a man, for example? Probably for a woman writer who's not gay, it is a man. <laughs> <laughs> but not always a man. It doesn't only have to be a man. But, but is it something outside of you or is it something inside of you? It's within you, probably. But it doesn't feel that way when you're pursuing the demon. And there is something very spooky and mysterious about writing. It's not clear why it comes sometimes and other times doesn't come at all. It, it's mysterious. And so it does feel like harnessing the magic in some way. And you don't know where it comes from. Do you have any theories or ideas? No, none whatsoever. <laughs> but as a child, were you encouraged in any way to write or was this your own invention? No, I was, I was always encouraged in my talents by my family. I mean, I came from a family where writing and painting and making music uh, were considered important and really the most important things. You could have been a painter as well. Yeah, probably. I mean, but I couldn't compete with my mother and grandfather and aunt who were all painters. I couldn't seize their profession. I didn't want to compete with my mother. Because? It seemed too frightening. And that's why I so admire my daughter for daring to write. Um, I must have given her some sense of serenity that she could take me on and practice my profession. How does she relate to the fact that you're a famous author? Um, how does she relate to it? Well, I'm just her mother. She boycotts my books. <laughs> she doesn't want to read them. And I think that's quite normal, actually. Do you ever compete about telling a good story first on print? Well, she, she was uh, very funny about my writing about a drunk driving accident and seducing the demon. She said, I can't believe that you've written about drunk driving, and I never did. Um, she never got arrested for drunk driving. And I actually had one of these horrible experiences in California, which is one of the most awful states for drunk driving. I mean, they give you no quarter, which I think is right. Mm. But Molly said, you should have let me write that. I could have done it. <laughs> so we do compete about material sometimes. Mm. How did it feel to write about that? story, that humiliating thing in this book? I felt, I felt very embarrassed. But it's my belief that you have to write 
Um, you have to write the truth about your life. What's the point of writing and not telling the truth? But I'm so impressed by your openness and frankness. Does it come easy to you or is it a struggle? It's very hard. I mean, I'm always convinced that people will make fun of me. But at the same time, I feel this compulsion to tell the truth because it makes other people feel less lonely. You know, human beings are creatures who make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And hopefully our mistakes are funny or eventually they become funny to us. But talking about them makes it easier. I mean, I love reading about your mistakes. <laughs> I really do. And uh, I love Fear of Flying because I'm around 30 and there are probably a lot of people here today who uh, read this book when it was new and were deeply influenced it, uh, by it. And I can't compete with that because I was born five years after the book. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it comforts me very much because I'm around 30 and Isadora Wing is around 30. And her life is a mess in many ways but it could still be all right. I, I think people underestimate how much turmoil there is between 20 and 30. Um, in a way, we're still adolescents, not adults. And we're very confused about who we want to be. And we're also breaking away from parents and not sure how to do it or whether it's disloyal to do it. And... Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extension of adolescence. And we think of 30 as the beginning of adulthood. So it is an interesting time in life, but it's a very painful time. And it's only when you look back on it, let's say from 50 or 60, that you realize how much chaos you were in. How much chaos were you in then yourself? I, I was certainly in a lot of chaos. I was married to somebody I knew I couldn't stay with. I was beginning to find my energies as a writer. Um, I was very confused. When you look back uh, on, the, on the girl or the woman who, who wrote this book, Fear of Flying, how do you feel about her? I feel tender towards her, and I also feel she's an absolute mess. <laughs> you wish you could go back in time and help her? I wish I could go back in time and say, it will be fine. It will be okay. Um, you, you won't wind up with him. <laughs> <laughs> there are other things waiting for you in life. <laughs> There's a scene towards the end of Fear of Flying that I love very much. Uh, Isadora is in Paris and she's looking for her room. Uh, and by accident, she runs into a man uh, in a different room who's sitting cutting his nails uh, <laughs> in a Buddha-like posture. And uh, even though she runs in, he's only amazed and, and thinks it's funny. And she's thinking, how is that possible? Because she would have been scared by such an incident. Um, and I think that I'd love to get there myself, not getting scared by someone running into my room as I'm cutting my nails, <laughs> in a way. So, anyways... Uh, that Paris hotel room, um, when Isadora is alone, is really the crux of the novel. 
and when she has the dialogue with herself about her fear of being alone, I think that that dialogue with herself, dialogue between self and soul, soul is really, in some ways, the questions of the novel are all raised there. And it's something I often read when I'm asked to read from the book. Hmm. Could you say a little more about that dialogue? Do you remember writing it? Yes, I do remember writing it. Um, when I was writing Fear of Flying, I took many wrong turns when I was trying to wind up the plot. And there was a moment when I read, <laughs> I read Saul Bellow's novel Herzog. And in Saul Bellow's novel, he writes all these letters to dead people, philosophers. So I went on a detour, a maybe a hundred page detour, in which I wrote, as Isadora, a letter to Sigmund Freud, <laughs> and a letter to Dostoevsky, a letter to Immanuel Kant, a letter to um, Simone de Beauvoir, etc. And I was in the thrall of Saul Bellow, I guess. I later threw out all of these letters, and then I thought, what is really happening to this woman? She's afraid to be alone. And I have to address that. She has to be in this awful hotel room, and she has to address being alone. And also she gets her period, of course. Um, when Fear of Flying was published, a critic pointed out that the action of the book is exactly the same as a menstrual period, 28 days. And I thought that was brilliant, but I had no idea when I was writing the book <laughs> that it was my unconscious that was so brilliant. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Um, what did you have an idea about when you wrote that book? Not it becoming a large success, at least. I thought it was important for a woman to write honestly about what goes on inside her head, to tell the truth about a woman's life. I had read Portnoy's Complaint. Um, Philip Roth, yeah. If you remember, it was a moment when censorship was beginning to disappear. Um, remember that um, Lady Chatterley's Lover was banned, Lolita was banned, Tropic of Cancer was banned, and sometime during the 60s, all of those taboos went away. And male writers responded by writing much more intimate books. But I hadn't yet seen a woman writer writing about all the crazy things that go on in her head. And I wanted to get that down on paper. I had no idea how it would be received, or even if it would be published, but I thought it was important to get all that stuff down. What would have happened if you were two years later then? Would it have been too late, do you think? No, not two years later. But if I had been 10 years earlier, the book never would have been published. I was lucky that we were at a moment when people were interested in women and what they thought. It was, a, it was a moment in time 
Ten years before, nobody would have published the book. In Seducing the Demon, you say that um, it's hard to understand now how, um, how male the literary world was at that time. Could you try to explain how male-dominated it was? Well, the great, the great writers, the, the anointed writers, were people like Updike and Bellow and Malamud. Um, I can't think of a woman writer who had that kind of stature, except maybe Simone de Beauvoir, but she was French. Mm. That didn't impact us to the same degree. And people did not focus on women writers. I remember that when I was studying American poetry, there was a, a bunch of books in the uh, library at Columbia, American Men of Letters, it was called, and there was Emily Dickinson, American <laughs> Men of Letters. So she was an honorary man. But pe people didn't think of women's writing as, as um, particularly interesting. We were kind of invisible, which is so odd when you think about it. Our greatest poet, the poet who invented love poetry, was Sappho. So women had been great writers going back thousands of years. So how did we get forgotten? But we were forgotten. And then suddenly we had a feminist movement that was interested in unearthing the works of women. You mentioned Sappho and you, you've written this book, Sappho's Leap. Do you see any kind of similarities between Isadora Wing and Sappho? Well, we, we know so little about Sappho's life. I mean, we know certain markers about her life from the testimonia. We know that she um, was born in Mytilene, that she lived in Sicily, in Ortigia, for much of her life. But we don't know a lot about her. We know that she came from an aristocratic family, a family of wine merchants. But that's... That's about it. So it's hard to know. But one of the things I've learned from writing historical novels is that, you know, the clothing changes, the means of transportation change, the food changes, but people's feelings remain the same in every century. And that's a very useful thing to know. So I assume that Sappho had feelings that would be like any woman's feelings. But the invisibility um, about women authors in the 70s, is that all gone now or how would you, how do you judge I the think women are, um, I think women are seen uh, as authors. It's more easy. We've had a whole series of academics studying women writers and yet women do not get the same respect as male authors. I mean, we're put into the ghetto of chiclet. It is, it's not so easy to be a woman author. But is it a good thing that uh, women write chiclet or is that kind of a category that you don't like? I don't think women write chiclet. No, chiclet not in general, oh my God, no. <laughs> but, but those who do, those who do. I have nothing against it, but I think I think it's great if women are writing, and but they've been very much ghettoized, except for a few. And 
those are the women who write about men, like Annie Prue and people like that. One of the, the secrets with a woman author like Annie Prue is that she gives primacy to men in her books. And so, of course, the critics love her. <laughs> when you started to um, write Fear of Flying, you lived in Heidelberg in Germany, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. You lived there from 1966 to 69? Yes. What was that like? Well, it was very interesting because I suddenly was in the country where the Holocaust had occurred. And although I was never an observant Jew, I was very aware that if I had been born in those years, I would have been killed as a child. So I became very conscious of my Jewishness. In New York, nobody is conscious of Jewishness. New York seems like the least anti-Semitic city in the world because it's probably got more Jews than Jerusalem and, or Tel Aviv. And, they, and the Jews in New York are very powerful and have a lot of options. I had grown up in a world like that, and suddenly I was in, I was in the country of the Holocaust. So it was an amazing awakening for me. So it, it changed your uh, feelings about your own Jewish identity? Absolutely. Did it make you angry? Not so much angry as conscious. In my 20s, I went through a period of reading absolutely everything I could find about the Holocaust. And it wasn't only because I was in Heidelberg, it was because I became fascinated with that subject. Actually, my daughter went through a similar period in her 20s where she read everything about the Holocaust. And she also, like me, feels a strong sense of cultural Jewish identity, although she's not observant, as I'm not. I read in the book that you like going to the places that great authors uh, wrote their books and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You take your own daughter back to the place that you wrote in, in Heidelberg. What yes. was that like? She thought it was a dump. What? <laughs> what a dump, she said. How can you have lived here? It was, you know, a military housing project. Her life has been much more elegant than my life. <laughs> <laughs> But not only elegant. Uh, it's a very uh, compelling and moving part of the, this book where you tell about your daughter's drug addiction. What was it like to write about that? It was very difficult to write about it. I think it was very important to write about it also. Molly has also written a book about deciding to live. It's called Normal Girl. And... Um, she made up her mind she was not going to die from drugs. And she made up her mind to get sober. And that was 13 years ago. And she spends a lot of her time helping young women who are coming off drugs. She's amazing in that regard. I mean, she gives back to the community. Hmm. So... She has her own writing career. She has three children, 
and she's forever helping young women get off drugs. Hmm. So she, she's kind of, she really made a commitment to live, not die. Hmm. And in many ways, she's inspired me in oh, that way. Yeah. But when you understood that she had become addicted to drugs, how did you cope with that? It was, it was very hard. In fact, I remember she got in a taxi with me on a day that she, she had gone and made an appointment with an addiction therapist without telling me. And she got in a taxi with me and I was going downtown to give a poetry reading at a bookstore in the village. And she said, Mom, I'm hooked on cocaine. I have to get off it. And my immediate feeling was, oh, it's not as bad as she's saying. And then I remember saying to myself, shut up, listen. Because I didn't want to hear it. I didn't really want to know it. And she said, I think I have to go away and get sober. It was a moment when I really had to take myself in hand as a mother and say, most mothers don't want to hear this, just shut up and listen. And I went and did my reading, and the next day we flew to Minnesota to a rehab, and my friend Judy Collins was able to find a bed for Molly which was not easy to do, they were all full. And we flew to Minnesota and she went to the rehab for a, a month. She was very brave. But it's a very, in a way, beautiful description of, of your stay in Minnesota. It's so cold outside. Um, and it's, it's the very bottom for you in a way, I think you, you're right. You know, um, Minnesota is, is a state where everything's icy. People drill holes in the ice to fish. Um, and there are pine trees everywhere and it's very silent. It's quite an amazing place. Mm. And <laughs> I remember staying in this very Spartan room and I wasn't really allowed to see my daughter. No. You know, maybe for a half hour for a coffee, that was it. Hmm. And then it all went well afterwards. She found something that she needed. Hmm. And I couldn't give it to her. Hmm. But she was able to find it hmm. herself. Which is amazing, hmm. I think. Well, speaking of Minnesota, I think it was Paul Oster who said that going with his wife, Siri Hustvet, to Minnesota, he, he in the, because of the way women were dressed, he thought they all were lesbians. <laughs> so that was Minnesota. <laughs> Did he say that? Yeah, he said that. But we edited that away from the program then. So <laughs> I think Siri wanted that or something. But, um, well, yeah. Sylvia Plath, you write about Sylvia Plath. What, when you started to, to read her, 
what did you experience as new in that poetry? I started to read her poetry when I, around the time I was writing uh, Fear of Flying, or the early drafts of it, because I wrote Fear of Flying throughout my 20s and kept rewriting it. And her poetry opened a door for me. She was able to be angry and direct and to write out of the dream life. Her images were like the powerful images in dreams. And she, I think, was enormously important in giving me the courage to write out of anger. That was, she was the first, to some degree, Anne Sexton as well. Hmm. You wrote about the suicides of Anne Sexton and others. Did that make you angry? Well, an awful lot of women writers committed suicide. Um, they found no place for themselves in the world. I mean, you can say a lot of things about these suicides, that Sylvia Plath was perhaps chronically depressed, that um, Anne Sexton maybe was bipolar, Virginia Woolf heard voices, but don't you think it also had something to do with, being, with not, never fitting in as a woman writer? Never finding a loving connection with other, other writers. Do you think so? It can't be an accident that so many women writers committed suicide. I mean, writers are lonely in general, but women writers had even more reason to feel lonely. Mm. You know, they were ostracized often. Certainly that was true of Sylvia Plath. Mm. But maybe it's also the rage that can't find a place because suicide is an extremely angry, angry act. And leaving people behind, leaving two little children, I mean, it's a very rageful act. And her son actually committed suicide not long ago. You write about Ted Hughes also in, mm -hmm. in this book. And he's kind of a, a real male demon. Oh, he was really a demon. Yeah. And she bit his neck in, in kind of a demon act. When the story about them is when they met at a party, they went off into a room to kiss. And after they kissed, she sank her teeth into his cheek um, and drew blood. I think that's why he married her. <laughs> it was like a statement. I am as violent as you. I am your proper mate. It was almost like a vampire thing to do. But how did you experience him? Could you try to, to explain? He was a compulsive flirt. Um, he thought every woman would fall down for him. So that's a good thing if you think that it's going to happen. Or... I think um, probably the fantasy was very good for my poetry. 
I don't think it would have been very good to actually go to bed with him. But the fantasy, that you can really use in your writing. <laughs> so it's better not going to bed with someone in order to keep the fantasy. Keep the fantasy. If you go to bed with somebody, you lose the fantasy. And God knows it might be a disaster. <laughs> But if you have the fantasy, that's wonderful for a writer. Hmm. Or you should r finish the novel before you go to bed with someone. Finish the novel. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. that could be a good idea. Hmm. <laughs> Use it as inspiration. Hmm. I mean, there's something about... Um, inspiration that feels very sexual, feels like lust. It's hard to distinguish between the two. It is? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you don't find that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I've been really inspired yet then. <laughs> I have to think about it. But you say in the book that Ted Hughes had that kind of uh, demon-like um, aura. And Ingmar Bergman is another one. He certainly was demonic. But in his case, it was that he listened. He seemed to, you know, he was very interested in women and what they were thinking and their fantasies and their thoughts. And he seemed to pull it out of you. And he listened very well. Which I think is, is a kind of genius. Listening. Mm-hmm. That's good. Where did you meet then? I met him because we had the same publisher. Um, I met Ted Hughes because a very good friend of his lived in New York and had a crush on me. And he took me to meet Ted. I don't know, it was sort of like, I don't know what he expected to get out of it, this friend. But something, I'm not sure. And. Um, Ingmar Bergman I met because we had the same publisher. Hmm. Uh, his uh, um, Scenes from a Marriage by uh, Ingmar Bergman was came out the same year, I guess, as, uh, as your book. Uh, did you see it? And oh, I thought it was amazing. And I think there was something in the air in the 70s. People really wanted to explore those things. Less so now. There's less interest in them now. The complications of men and women. I mean, of course, great writers always write about that. I'm just, I'm just reading um, David Grossman's new book. And he has this ability to get inside the mind of a woman. It's very remarkable. Because it's difficult. Do you find it difficult? <laughs> I probably do, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I found this... Uh, uh, well, speaking about men and women, I, there's this ni uh, nice... I think it's Isadora Wing uh, discussing with herself, asking herself, do two men perhaps add up to one whole person? <laughs> How do you feel about that one? Often, you know, often in my life, particularly when I was single, 
I thought the only way you could have what you wanted from a man was to have two of them, <laughs> or possibly three. <laughs> and then you would get everything you needed. You would get conversation, intelligence, sex, stability, and you could put the three of them together and get one whole person. <laughs> but I'm thinking about your husband that you have now. <laughs> he, he's here on the front row, and he's, he seems like he has all of it from how you write about him in, in, in this book. Well, he seems like the greatest find, then. He is... He is um, he's a whole person. You know, maybe I didn't know how to find such people when I was younger. I don't know. But he is, um, he is a mensch, a human being. And maybe also I'm different. Maybe I know how to listen better than I did when I was younger. And maybe I know how to choose better now. I think we do get better at that as we get older. Mm. Were you bad before, would you say, or what? is it? I was motivated by the wrong things. Mm. You know, sex can be very devious. You can't make decisions in your life only because of sex. And I think I made a lot of decisions only because of sex when I was younger. What happens then? Uh, what happens then? Well, a variety of things happen, but... <laughs> you really want, um, in a partner, you want other things than only sex. I mean, you want sex, but when you make it the most important thing, it's not such a hot idea. And it's very confusing, sex. How? You know, it overwhelms all the other feelings. Mm. This is the best thing about getting older. That you can think straight. <laughs> Your husband is laughing very loud now. <laughs> Could he's we, we he's could... trying to encourage me. Yeah. That's very Doesn't good. Take much. Doesn't take much. <laughs> this is my mother's old copy of Fear of Flying. Mm -hmm. It was on her bedside table all of my childhood almost. Really? Yeah. So she read it and reread it. Yeah, it's almost worn out. Uh -huh. uh, and I asked to, 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 to get her copy, and I was very afraid of, of her having taken notes in it and like, <laughs> having made exclamation marks and stuff like that. <laughs> but there were none, fortunately. Um, That's the biggest compliment to a writer, to reread the book and to put exclamation points and to say, yes, no, you're wrong, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we were talking about sex, and you, you you're writing about Frankfurt in the, in this book, yeah. and I've been to Frankfurt myself, um, and uh, a famous Norwegian author tried to seduce me there. Yeah. Uh, after some other publisher had said that those things never happen in Frankfurt, 
but they obviously do. Uh, <laughs> could you tell me a little about your trip to Frankfurt? You know, when you go to Frankfurt, you, you know, the publishers want their money, their money's worth. So you virtually never get out of the, the lobby or the VIP room and you're sitting there all day doing interviews. You begin to feel like you're not alive. So maybe sex is a way to feel alive. I mean, have you felt alive in Sweden now? You've done so many interviews. <laughs> You're in all the newspapers. <laughs> I, like, I like Sweden. It seems like a very civilized country compared to America, which is still a bit like the Wild West. Mm. And compared to Norway as well. Yes. <laughs> it's very civilized. Yeah, but Frankfurt. Frankfurt is a place where, you know, there's a wonderful line from a Tom Stoppard play. Hotel rooms constitute a separate moral universe. And I think we should say Frankfurt constitutes a separate moral universe. I am sure a lot of people fall into bed in Frankfurt and then feel very embarrassed afterwards. But they don't write about it. Then. Yeah, and, and the other thing is it's completely against my rule to ever sleep with the publisher. And I did that in Frankfurt. <laughs> <laughs> and he was Martha Stewart's husband. Well, that was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> But why, why did you write about it then? Because I think it's very funny. You know, I had a, a knack for getting myself in trouble. I, I'm much better at that now, you know, I don't get myself in trouble. But if I didn't write about being arrested for drunk driving or sleeping with Martha Stewart's husband, how would you know that I was a human being? And yes, I've made many, many mistakes in my life. Um, And some of them are, are funny. It was like I was blundering into trouble all the time. But I think people can identify with this. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's good material also. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you can't resist good material. Could you use... Anything and everything? I don't know if I use everything. But if it's funny, I use it. Never cut funny. <laughs> Never cut funny. Yeah. That's a principle. As a principle. Mm -hmm. But what about the... We can't avoid it. Your family, how do they feel about all this frankness? Um, my sisters don't like it. My mother said, you're writing my obituary, stick to poetry. And she's still alive, right? Yeah, she's, in December, she'll be 99. But she has pretty much lost her memory. And she's in and out of reality. 
which is very frightening to me. It's frightening. Yeah, very frightening. Because you think about yourself or The great thing about losing your memory is apparently you don't know when you lose your memory. But I think it is very frightening to me. And actually, that's one of the reasons I stopped drinking. Because I thought, you're more likely to lose your memory if you drink. <laughs> I don't want to lose my memory. And you don't want to stop right? No. Never. But you insult your sisters or, or by your writing or I don't know how, how we could uh, how we should say it but 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 you keep writing and you keep having a relationship with them how 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 does that function I'm not sure I mean I think my both my sisters uh, my younger sister somewhat less my older sister more you know my older sister has gotten up at a literary conference and denounced my work She did. In front of scholars from all over, over the world. What did she say? That my writing had caused her pain. I'm going to have to write about that too, you know. I haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> But how does that affect you then? It, it made me feel very embarrassed. But it wasn't the first time I became aware that I have crazy people in my family. I mean, I've known this for a long time. <laughs> When did it occur to you the first time then? Uh, we, I, we have plenty of crazy people in the family. Mm. But this Woody Allen movie, Hannah and Her Sister, mm -hmm. I think you write somewhere that your family is very much like, like that family. Well, I felt I identified with those sisters, yes. Mm. I see. What are you working on now? I'm working on a novel about a woman who goes, who is able to become young again, and who discovers that it's not the solution. Hmm. How uh, does she discover that? Well, I have to, I have to make that real. Because we all, I mean, I think many of us would love to look young again. But would we want our brains to be young again, is the question. And I think most people would say no. Because being young can be very painful, and chaotic, and difficult. Mm. At any rate, so I'm exploring some of those questions in this book. Mm. Because she doesn't keep her brain when she gets young again. Her brain is old, mm. her body is young. Mm. And that's, and that's really the crux of the story. You've been a president of the Writers Guild of America, mm -hmm. and you know very much also about the publishing questions. Uh, how do you could, you could you give us some insight into the, the the situation of the publishing industry in in America? I think the publishing industry is in the midst of a paradigm shift. Um, We are moving from paper books to electronic books. Nobody really knows how it will go yet. Maybe both technologies will exist for a while. We don't know if one will replace the other. I, I think storytelling will not end. 
People told stories in the oral tradition. We have Homer, Sappho sang her poems. And I think we, we will not lose storytelling or poetry, but the form in which we record it will probably change. Um, maybe, maybe books will be shorter. Maybe the attention span will be less. I really don't know. But we're undergoing this great creative chaos, and probably it's a good thing to be in a period of chaos, because those are the periods that produce new things. So you keep faith in the, the written word? I think people need stories in order to tell them about themselves. And the way we preserve them is not that important. But your belief in language, could you tell a little about what happened when you were holding this speech at the Staten Island College or University about the importance of language? Can I remember? Um, I think that our ability um, to use language to change the world is probably unique to the human species. I don't think we're smarter than whales or dolphins or possibly other primates, but I do think we use language in a unique way. And I think we use language in order to change ourselves, in order to, to define our feelings, and I think we use language in order to change the world politically. How do you see the situation of, of the rhetorics and the language in the, in the political climate in the U.S. today, then? Is it any better with Obama? Is it, is it better with Obama? Do you see a change? Well, I, I see a problem with the political dialogue, which is that we have... One of the problems with the Internet and with blogs and with the lower attention span is that Bill Clinton said a few days ago, we live in a fact-free environment. We, we tend to be moved by rants, and we don't look behind the rant to see what's true and what's not true. This whole business of the Tea Party movement in the United States, it's as if people are throwing out um, unsubstantiated opinions, and nobody is looking to see if they're true or not. That's a negative thing. How do you see your role as an author then? Maybe to bring the dialogue back to reality. You know, authors do have a role. I, I mean, people, People have been gaga over the internet. And Sarah Palin tweets something stupid. And it goes viral on the internet. But it is not enough to just say an opinion. You have to have facts behind it. So I think that's a danger. Um, the danger is demagoguery. The internet is full of demagoguery and very little research, and it's incredibly superficial. 
but people are interested in real content. Maybe the majority are not. But just screaming at each other on the internet is not the way to make a better society, mm. without a doubt. Mm. Are you pessimistic? I'm pessimistic about the environment. I'm pessimistic about the way we're destroying the planet. Um, I'm very pessimistic about all the loose nuclear material around. You, you can buy the material for a bomb almost anywhere. That does worry me. And I think we should be spending more time on our space program because I think we're going to have to leave this planet <laughs> and find a better place to live. Seriously? Yes, I really do. I think we're spending too little money on the space program. Hmm. Too much on Afghanistan, not enough on the space program. <laughs> What about the, the, the women's conditions then? Uh, it's been going back and forth, you've said. How do you see it now? Well, we made half a revolution, and we haven't completed our revolution. And it's time to complete the women's revolution. The United States is, is a very backward country. I mean, the, the right to life movement has won. If the Republicans come back in power, it will become impossible to get an abortion anywhere in the United States. But it's not just the question of abortion. It's also the question of contraception and the trendiness of having babies. Everybody's having babies. And nobody's worrying about how we will feed them, take care of them, um, keep the McDonald's from multiplying all over the world. I mean, we used to talk about zero population growth in the 70s. It's rare to hear conversations about that now. Seducing the demon mm -hmm. could be read as um, a homage to your father as well. Was it intended to be that? Well, it wasn't intended to be that, but my father died uh, six years ago. And around the time my first grandson was born, They crossed each other like this. And I've been amazed at how much I've missed him and how much he's been on my mind. And he was my great uh, encourager in the family. My mother, no. My sisters, no. But my father and my grandfather both were very proud of me. So I was very lucky Because he lived long enough to see all of your success. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Was it important for him that you became famous? Very important. It was like I did it for him. It felt like that? It felt like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll find with many women who become successful that they have a deep identification with their fathers. Hmm. Often it's true. Do you have more examples? Well, I'm, I'm now, I mean, I'm writing about him again in this new book. And I'm trying to make sense of that father-daughter connection. Because hmm. it's really important. Hmm. 
I think that we also have the opportunity to, to get a couple of questions from the audience. But before you start asking your questions, I would like you to give an applause to Erica Young. Thank you.